0: Welcome to the Poetry Podcast with Magnus Basharat. History by John Burnside. History is a poem framed very deliberately by time and place. West Sands in St Andrew's Fife is a long beach that runs alongside the old course at the Royal and Ancient Golf Club in St Andrew's. For many people, it's the home of golf and a regular venue for the Open Championship. Sand dunes link the course with the beach, and the skyline to the south is dominated by the ancient town of St Andrews. It's the beach along which the 1924 British Olympic Athletic Squad run in the opening scene of the 1984 film Chariots of Fire. The date of September 2001 suggests that the events of 9-11, the aerial attacks on the World Trade Centre and the Pentagon that killed nearly 3,000 people, have recently happened and haunt the poem and the poetic voice. The opening line, today, is isolated at the top of the poem, which gives it significance. Only one day in the epic sweep of history, but the domestic and familial events of the poem on the beach in St Andrews perhaps offer an optimistic and life-affirming contrast to the devastation and carnage of events in New York. Much of the description in the poem is concerned with the air and sky. Flight and flying are often associated with freedom. But in this poem, the sky has brought death in the shape of the hijacked aircraft piloted into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. But the natural world that is closely observed in the poem, sea, sand, sky, wind, tide, all symbolise something eternal and enduring. It is a truism that... Time is a great healer. The sand spinning off in ribbons creates an image that is like the ribbons that are attached to children's kites. But this image of innocence and enjoyment is contrasted with that gasoline smell from Lucas gusting across the gold links. Lucas, pronounced like the name Lucas, which occurs later in the poem, used to be an RAF base, from which fighter planes flew countless defence and reconnaissance sorties between 1920 and 2015. So in 2001, when the poem is set, it's likely that the air attacks in the US would have meant R.E.F. Lucas in a state of high alert. So the natural and pure world of sky, sea and sand is corrupted by the smell of aviation fuel blown across the golf course. The tide is far out, so a vast expanse of beach is revealed, and the place where sky, sand and sea merge is quail grey, so the colour of a plain-looking bird that is more often heard rather than seen in Scotland. The lines and words are disordered on the page, perhaps reflecting the state of unease or uncertainty that runs throughout the poem or perhaps a way of capturing the varied and fleeting images that are in the poem. The warplanes cambered and turned, so even though they are also instruments of destruction, they are graceful in the sky, and like all aeroplanes, they exert a pull on the people on the beach who stop and stare. Today is repeated and again isolated, and the news in my mind shows us that the events of 9-11 haunt the poetic voice in the present, despite the happiness and innocent enjoyment he sees around him. The muffled dread of what may come describes that authentic state of hyper-anxiety people experience when a catastrophic event or disaster has taken away all the certainty they felt about the future of their lives. The poetic voice knelt down in the sand, which looks like it might become a precursor to prayer. But together with Lucas, a pun on the earlier Lucas airbase, he is finding evidence of life in all this drift work. So with his young child, he is beachcombing, as millions of parents would have done with their children before him. On a literal level, it's a very touching and affirmative picture. And on a metaphorical level as well, He is looking for signs and evidence of normality, of the life that he lived before the catastrophic events of 9-11, trying to anchor himself and his life once again in something real and physical. What he finds, though, isn't really evidence of life, but of death, as all the objects left behind on the sand are shells, shreds and smudges of weed and flesh. Wading birds have probably pecked out the flesh from the shells of the sea snails and other mollusks that are left behind on the beach when the tide retreats. The tide-worn stone suggests the millions of years that the tide would have washed in and out of the beach, smoothing jagged-edged stones imperceptibly but ineluctably. There is a definite shift in the tone of the poem after the second section, the lines become filled in on the page, and the broken half lines and single words become blocks of text, suggesting a gathering together of those earlier fragmented images. Against the background of adversarial dialectical constructs, such as Islam versus Christianity, or the West versus the Middle East and Asia, or of America, still referred to as the Great Satan by Iran, versus Afghanistan and Iraq or even of Western liberalism versus fundamental monotheism. We read that what makes us who we are is neither kinship nor our given states, but something lost between the world we own and what we dream about. It's quite a desperate search to identify a common humanity in a world where people identify as being for one cause, religion or country, and against another. It's very poetic and highly figurative as the kites flown in line too become a metaphor for us as people, our bodies fixed and anchored to the shore. The images that follow are again rather fragmented but encourage us to look for meaning and permanence in nature and the natural world rather than the violent world of man. Silt and tides, a sea anemone and a child's first nakedness are all images of untarnished nature and innocence. But the history of the poem's title, the events that set one person or country against another, has intervened and complicated or corrupted our original relationship with the made world. The mood of fear and insecurity that permeates the poem is expressed fully at the beginning of the next section. Sometimes I am dizzy with the fear of losing everything the sea, the sky, all living creatures, forests, estuaries. The list of what might be lost are what are visible around him. 9-11 has precipitated a moment of ultimate catastrophizing when everything seems on a violent threat. But there then comes an appeal for us to re-engage with the real world of objects and people, the drift and tug of other bodies we spend our time trying to know the virtual, not the world of virtual reality, not in 2001, but the imagined world of concept and theory. And there is a plea almost for us instead to apprehend the moment as it happens, to return to an immediate appreciation of the here and now, and to turn away from the complexities of geopolitics to the quiet local forms of history. So, This is a different history, the natural history that happens around us all the time, but which we don't see because we're not looking. From the fish lodged in the tide, to ornamental carp, spawn, sticklebacks, to goldfish carried home from fairgrounds, presumably having been won as prizes by doing something simple, like lobbing a ping-pong ball into a jar. They're all examples of aquatic creatures, whose life cycles will outlast us all. The poem is building towards the question posed as a problem, how to be alive in all this gazed upon and cherished world and do no harm. Gazed upon recalls the sense of wonderment and so much of the natural world that is a theme of the poem, wonderment and appreciation that can act as a counterfoil to the destruction born of hate that has happened just outside the poem. The images that the poem ends with are reassuring images of family, innocence and nature. A toddler on the beach who is puzzled by the pattern on a shell is a powerful presentation of innocence and natural curiosity. His parents on the dune slacks are perhaps the poet and the boy's mother and the kite that has become a powerful motif throughout the poem is still there connecting the parents to the air and sky which has been both an agent of freedom and destruction. The parents are both patient and afraid, as all parents are afraid of how the world may harm or help their children. The final statement is ambivalent and equivocal, as the parents are in a state of being attentive to the irredeemable. So they are being watchful for things which can't be saved or improved. Watching over their son in a permanent state of protection and vigilance. Thank you for listening to the Poetry Podcast. More podcast episodes in the series are available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast player you use. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.